Welcome to AMDG, a new podcast from the Jesuits. I'm your host, Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I'm not a Jesuit myself, but I really love the Jesuits and Ignatian spirituality. So I recently talked my wife into moving our family from New Jersey to Washington, D.C., so I could work with the Jesuits here. It's been really fun so far, but have you ever been to D.C. in the summer? I don't recommend it. The show's title, AMDG, comes from the Jesuit Latin motto, Ad Maiorum Dei Glorium, which means for the greater glory of God. The motto is everywhere in Jesuit circles. AMDG is carved into buildings at universities. It's been set to music more than a few times. High school students scribble it at the top of exam papers. I even read about a Jesuit fan getting AMDG printed on a vanity license plate. The motto is attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, and it reminds us that we should seek to do everything in praise of God and for the betterment of our neighbor. Even a podcast can give glory to God, so that's what I hope we can do here. More specifically, in this show, Jesuits and friends of Jesuits like me will come together to look at the world through Ignatian eyes. We'll be searching to find the work of God in anything and everything. For instance, a couple of our pilot episodes were about topics like the Women's World Cup and the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral. I'm really excited to share this first official episode of AMDG with you. The best-selling author and public intellectual, Malcolm Gladwell, is about to release a three-part series on his own podcast, Revisionist History, about how to think like a Jesuit. When I saw he was planning this, I almost fell out of my chair. Why on earth does Malcolm Gladwell want to run three whole podcast episodes about the Jesuits? I just had to find out. So I called him up and we had a really fun conversation. Thanks for joining us. Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for uh, coming on our uh, podcast to talk a little bit about your podcast, uh, Revisionist History. Uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on season four, which has just come out this summer. Been really enjoying it so far. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for uh, thank you for, uh, for for your interest. I'm happy to chat about Revisionist History. Yeah, sure. So a few weeks ago, someone uh, forwarded me one of your newsletters, which was announcing the return of the podcast Revisionist History. And in the description, it mentioned this three-part series about thinking like a Jesuit. And my first reaction was, oh, that's awesome. I love the Jesuits. I just moved my family from New Jersey to D.C. to work for the Jesuits. Uh, My second reaction, though, was um, why? Why is he doing this? So that's my first question (laughs) is why? Well, um, there's a there's a short answer. And there's a long answer. The long answer. I'll start with the long answer. Um, the long answer is that I've uh, I've always been interested in the general question about how um, religious practice can inform everyday thinking, um, and it strikes me that there is. I've always thought there was a tremendous amount of uh, wisdom in um, kind of the theological approach or the scriptural approach to to um, uh, to problems, and that as as a society we've moved away from religiosity, we have lost access to that wisdom. So that was sort of that's the larger. Now I'm not a Catholic. I'm I come from Protestant tradition. My family are all Mennonites now. I'm surrounded by Mennonite 
pastors in my life. So I'm a little distance from, um, uh, from, from the world of Catholics. But, you know, as you know, many, many, many um, uh, Protestants spend a lot of time investigating Catholic theology. Um, in particular, um, uh, the Jesuits, you know, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a kind of broad ecumenicalism in, um, in uh, theological worlds. So it's not a kind of, not as much of a stretch as you would imagine for a Protestant to be investigating Catholic things. Um, and then I just started kind of, I got very interested in the revival of casuistry in the, um, over the last 25 years that, you know, this very specific um, uh, Jesuit practice um, uh, that gets kind of rediscovered um, in, a, in a kind of semi-secular context in the 80s and 90s by a group of philosophers, some of whom have Catholic training, some who don't, um, who start applying it in the world of medical ethics. Um, and with really interesting and fruitful results. Anyway, that was where, that was my point in. I started reading all of these modern day casuists and got really interested in well, where did this approach to problem solving um, come from? And that's how I kind of found myself um, uh, reading deeply and talking to lots of, lots of, of Jesuits. Um, there was also, there were some stories, I mean, in the podcast, this, in Richard's history this this year, I have three episodes that are loosely under there. I always do a mini series in every episode of every season of Revisions history, and this year's mini series is about Jesuits. And there was one story in particular I really wanted to tell, which was the story of John Rock and um, the birth control pill in the '60s. And that was it is as much a, a story about theology as it is a story about science. And so once that was my sort of point of entry, once I had that, I was like, you know, this is so interesting. Why not do uh, three episodes? And so I did. So you mentioned casuistry, which again, you, you introduce in the, the first episode of this, this three-part series. Um, could you just, I love your little introduction to that for, for listeners who might not be familiar uh, with mm -hmm. that. Um, that school of thinking. Could you just do a brief uh, introduction to what you mean when you say casuistry? Yeah, well, I'm now let's be clear that I am a, a layman, B, not a Catholic. So uh, there are many people listening to this who will do a much better job of explaining this than I am. So this is the outsider's simplified, possibly butchered description. But casuistry come, is a word that comes from um, the Latin for case. And it's a way of uh, approaching novel problems that is pioneered um, in the 16th and 17th century by Jesuit theologians. And basically it's a way of, it's a, a, a way of attacking novel problems on a case by case basis. It says, let's put aside broad uh, principles and let us, the, the, the lovely phrase that, uh, um, that uh, uh, James Keenan, a, a, a Jesuit theologian in Rome, taught me is um, to dis and descend into the particular. It says, let's start with the details and let's start with the specifics of the case in front of us. And then let's move from the specifics to 
a more general consideration of how we feel about this particular case, as opposed to generally when we think of moral reasoning, we think of starting with a set of principles and then applying them to the case in, 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 at hand. And what the Jesuits do is they reverse that and they say, because the world in the 16th century is, I mean, that is the age of exploration and expansion and you know, Jesuit missionaries are being, are being sent out all over the world and encountering completely novel situations. And they feel like they have to learn the specifics of the case in front of them first um, before they sort of stand back and, um, uh, and try and abstract their understanding. That, that's such a beautiful idea. I love that idea. And I feel like so many of the um, ethical and political and social quandaries we get into come because we are in such a hurry to stamp a broad principle onto a novel and difficult situation. And we never stop to say, wait a minute, before we do that, let us listen and ask questions and learn and figure out exactly what we're dealing with. Sure. So some of these new problems that you address in the, the three episodes uh, include questions about performance enhancing drugs and sports and the birth control pill, uh, as you mentioned, and then also a really complicated and uh, gut wrenching police shooting. Just curious if you were to make start to even dive into more episodes, you're saying uh, there are other problems. What are some other problems you think could use uh, some Jesuit moral reasoning that we're facing today? Well, you know, uh, I sort of think of almost every problem that we wrestle with right now in contemporary American politics could use a little, um, a little taste of St. Ignatius. Um, you know, uh, so, I mean, I, I'm just randomly picking one. Uh, you know, we have two parties who are divided, among other things, over the question of taxes. Let's just pick taxes, for example. One party says taxes need to be lower. One party says you know, taxes, particularly on the rich, need to be higher. Those are baked into the platforms of the Democrats and the Republicans. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something possibly blasphemous here. We're St. Ignatius here. St. Ignatius would say, well, wait a minute. The issue is not how do you feel about taxes in the abstract. The issue is what are the needs of the government in 2019? And what are the specifics of the taxes we're thinking about? We can't know how, you cannot have a position on taxes until you have descended into the particulars of the, of the economic and the economic situation you are in at this moment, right? So rather than, I, I don't want to hear, I'm sick of hearing people say I'm anti-tax or I'm, you know, or, I, or I'm on the other side of that issue. What I want someone to do is to be incredibly specific and say, I think that the welfare of most Americans would be enhanced by this very particular action on the question of taxes right now. And if the situation changes two years from now, I will change my mind, right? That's what I'd like to, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a very, very kind of um, uh, prosaic um, example of, of Ignatian theology applied to contemporary politics. But how much easier and um, not just easier, how much more civil and productive would our political discourse be if people set aside their, their uh, general preconceptions on the question of taxes and said, let's talk about right now. 
give me a specific example and let's discuss a specific example. I love that you kind of dive right into the political discourse with that question, because you see right now that religion is, you know, in a lot of uh, political headlines. You have like the what kind of white evangelical continuing support of the president. You have some of the Democratic presidential candidates who are specifically kind of talking about their faith life. And I was interested in, I'm not sure if you realized as you were making this podcast that you were doing what a lot of folks in the Catholic church are trying to do. And I imagine other, other churches, which is to take this ancient tradition and to say, how is this still relevant? How does this still apply? Uh, yeah. today, especially at a time when people are leaving the churches. So like there are huge conferences that gather and say, how do we make this relevant? How do we uh, convince people, young people and others that, no, this community is worth uh, sticking with for a number of reasons, including that it's not some dusty thing from the past, but it's living and it has something to offer in 2019. So so what is what do you think? You said you were interested in the kind of theological or scriptural ways of uh, approaching things. What maybe does the Catholic Church in particular, what does it have to offer the world in 2019, our, our country where political discourse is, is damaged and which communities are, are breaking apart. What what does religion, organized religion, have to offer in 2019? Yeah, well, so many things. But let me just start with something that. So I went to Rome and I had this uh, fascinating conversation with a Jesuit theologian there, um, who's uh, normally teaches at uh, at um, uh, BU at Boston. It's a, what do you waste in college? BC. Oh, yeah, he's at BC. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yes, BC. Um, and uh, uh, James Keenan was his name. And he was talking about one of the foundational principles of Ignatian theology was what 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 St. Ignatius taught his followers was first and foremost how to listen. Um, and that that was that his theology was fundamentally at its at its heart a listening theology. Um, and until you can listen closely to what someone has to say, you cannot understand them. You cannot, um, well, you, uh, Ignatius was interested in consoling people, which I think is a, another extraordinarily important phrase in the present day. Um, the idea of having an entire way of thinking organized around offering consolation to those who are suffering. I mean, could anything be more relevant to 2019 than that? I mean, um, but anyway, he said the foundation of all of that is that you must know how to listen. And as you know, there's a whole part of Ignatian theology, which is about instructing and teaching people how to listen. And, you know, you can't listen until you set aside your preconceptions and your, uh, uh, your biases and your, you need to free yourself of anything that kind of gets in the way of really listening and um, understanding the people that you're talking to. That is, like I said, I can't think of something that is more relevant to a divided time than that. I really think that we have, um, in, our, in our political and civic discourse, have forgotten how to listen. Um, you know, we're rejecting people before they've even finished, um, you know, they've even finished their thought, right? We have... I find myself doing this all the time, which is what was so incredibly fascinating about sitting, you know, reading about Ignatian theology and sitting down and talking to all these Jesuits was I was able to sort of self-diagnose all of the mistakes that I make in, um, in, in, in understanding others. Um, you know, there's a, uh, I, I had a long chat with James Martin, who I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, 
a very uh, um, uh, uh, active on Twitter and all the places, um, Jesuit theologian. And he was talking about how when he was first training, um, he, you know, was going to be sent out for his, I don't know what you call it, when you go into the world. And, and he said to his, his superior, you know, I can, I'd like to be sent anywhere, but the one place I really don't want to go is a hospital because I, you know, I just can't stand the sight of blood and blood. but send me anywhere else. And his superior said, I'm sending you to a hospital. And the, the idea was not to be malicious or, you know, or masochistic, but was, he was like, you have a bias that is preventing you from listening to a class of people. You need to get rid of it, right? You can't, you can't carry around this thing which says I can deal with anyone except someone who's in a hospital. You've got to get rid of, you know, you have to free yourself of that. And that's kind of fantastic, right? I mean, it's such a, uh, a beautiful and important thought. I mean, I didn't even, the, anyway, so that was, that was the kind of, those kinds of things don't have a, the fact that it was, it's almost a distraction to say that that insight was first, um, first occurred in the 16th century. It's, there's nothing, there's no time limit on that insight. It's as relevant today as it was 500 years ago. Yeah, and Ignatian spirituality talks about, you know, detachment, um, indifference, not in the kind of way we think of indifference, but the sense that my biases, my opinions, when you come into a, a conversation, to any encounter, to kind of leave those at the side and like, understanding that you might be wrong, that your way of uh, proceeding yeah. is not necessarily the only way. And I would think for you as a reporter, as you described, kind of reflecting on your own listening skills, listening, asking good questions and listening is such an important, like the part, like the main part of your job, right? So I'm just curious, like how, um, how you practice listening. You mentioned maybe reflecting on some of these things even influences some of the listening and conversations you have. Like, how do you practice that? How do you practice listening as a reporter? But I hadn't thought about it for a long time until I did these three episodes. And I realized that it's not a, uh, it's not, that you have to be kind of um, uh, uh, conscious and uh, of your listening. In other words, I think that you, that at least I do, will fall into bad habits and uh, will start to kind of impose my, point of view on someone, unless I constantly remind myself to stop, to ask questions, to consider what someone else has to say and think first before I interject. Particularly when, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, I was giving advice to someone, to a young, someone who is, uh, may work with me on a project, but who is 23 years old. I'm 56. And She's coming for advice, and the the natural thing in those situation is for the senior person, me, just to talk. And I sort of I thought of I actually thought of you know all the things I'd learned about Ignatian spirituality, and I said, Malcolm, you have to before you say give her any advice, you have got to spend a good you know whatever it was twenty minutes, half an hour, figuring out what does she want, what is she thinking, what is she like, what is she afraid of, what does she need to learn. Just, you know, just keep yourself in check until you know something about her. That's, you know, something I think you have to be mindful every time you have a conversation. Sure. Yeah, no, and again, I 
uh, I really heard that, I think, at work, in particular in the, the third episode of the series, again, as you kind of dive into this very complicated police shooting in which, you know, people who would come into that case with kind of their minds made up already, everyone was kind of challenged a little bit and had to kind of sit in some of that uh, discomfort. Uh, what was that experience like uh, re recording and uh, reporting that story in particular? Yeah, yeah so the, the, there are three episodes in this trilogy. And the third episode is... The first two episodes I try and establish for people who are unfamiliar with Ignatian spirituality, what its kind of major principles are and how you apply, how you do um, think like a Jesuit in a difficult situation. And then the third episode is, uh, it's really just a story about a single police shooting that I sort of stumbled on by accident. Not one of the ones that was in the news, but a different one um, that does not unfold when you hear about it, you will have a preconception. I don't know what, it, what it'll be, but there's a number of obvious ways in which you will react to it. And the point of the episode is that the, the way that you react to that episode initially is almost, that, that shooting initially, um, is almost certainly wrong. And um, unless you are willing to keep your mind open, you will misunderstand. First of all, misunderstand what happened in the police shooting. And more importantly, you will not understand where to, who to console, because that was the, that was the other, again, I, I feel so weird talking about, about Ignatian spirituality to people who know way more about it than I do, you know, but anyway, the, one of the, you know, one of the great, um, as I said, one of the great objects of goals of St. Ignatius was to figure out how to console people who were suffering. And you know, that's not always obvious. And one of the things I was trying to do in that third episode is to say, you will not understand how to console the people involved in the shooting, and more importantly, who to console, unless you set aside your preconceptions, unless you listen. And that to me was, um, it was really eye-opening because there, I was one of those people who, when I first heard about that shooting, jumped to the wrong conclusion. And I was, I went to see this kind of guy in Texas, who's the forensic criminologist who examined the case and made sense of it for the, for the parties involved. And he said something to me that was really important and beautiful, which was, he was like, every case is different. And what he meant was every time you, you confront a, one of these police shootings, you have to start from scratch. You cannot import your preconceptions from a previous case to the new one. Um, you got to clear the decks and start from zero. And that's a that is that is a principle of of you know Saint Ignatius himself talked about this idea of the scale must be at zero when you begin your examination of a new case. And that's the same idea, right? It's like it's as if this guy, this guy in you know in the hill country of Texas, who's this total like you know, my politics are no surprise to anyone. He is a guy who's on Fox News every other week. I mean, he's like a like a right wing Texas cop. He's not, you know, he's not normally someone from whom I would I would take wisdom, and yet he was expressing this very, very fundamentally beautiful and important point, which is every case is different, which means you have to listen. That listening really, really matters if you're going to make sense of what's in front of you. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
I do want to I want to go back a little bit now in in the series. So we're just talking about the third of three episodes to kind of the very beginning, the the opening scene when you're you're in Rome and and you mentioned this at the beginning and visiting the the church of the the Jesu. And so it seems like again, you did a pretty deep dive into mm-hmm. Jesuit life. You went over there, you met with Jesuits, uh, learned about St. Ignatius uh, and his companions. So what surprised you in that whole reporting process? What surprised me was, uh, what we've been talking about, which was just how uh, unbelievably relevant all of this is to today. So I had sort of, you know, you know, I had never encountered any of this before. This was all new to me, and which is one of the reasons why I love doing this revisionist history podcast is that I just every episode I learn something fantastic. But I had sort of, I had had the standard preconception that. If you're investigating the thinking of someone from the 16th century, you're going to have to do do a lot of work to update it. In other words, you're going to have this lovely little historical story that you can tell. And then what you'll do is you will kind of um, transpose all of that onto the present day. And you'll update it, you'll gloss it off, you'll clean it up, you'll, you know, you'll, uh, it'll be a quaint historical story which will reflect on what's happening today. That is exactly the opposite of what I found. What I found instead was something that was so breathtakingly relevant um, that I didn't have to do any updating at all. I just, I just explained this stuff from hundreds of years ago and said, this is exactly what we're dealing with now. Um, and that was kind of, you know, that was, um, that was really eye-opening um, and cool. It made me... Uh, uh, you know, and I, the more I read, the more kind of impressed I was at how um, how kind of prescient a lot of Saint Ignatius' thinking was. Um, so that was one thing. And two, I you know, anytime you encounter the Catholic Church on its home turf, it's just sort of awe-inspiring. You know, it's like um, I've been to Rome many times before, but I the Catholic part of Rome was not the Rome I was engaging with. You know, I wasn't going to the Vatican. I wasn't visiting the church at the JSU. I wasn't reading about St. Ignatius. I was eating pasta, <laughs> like, you know, I, you know, going to the Parthenon. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was fun to kind of re, uh, to revi- revisit a very familiar place, um, but through, from a perspective I'd never done it, I'd never done before. So in that process, uh, was there anything that, you know, got left on the cutting room floor? It didn't make it into the episodes that uh, you found really fascinating? Well, there always is. Um, And I would love to have talked, you know, uh, I think, for example, we had a whole, and I think we cut it out in the end. Um, I, growing up in Canada, you know, we we were always taught about uh, Father Brebeuf, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But yep. one other kind of, um, and I even think he's the patron saint. Is he the Canadian patron saint? He might be. But there was a famous Jesuit missionary um, called Brebeuf in the 16th century who comes to Quebec and who kind of um, ministers to the Iroquois. And uh, and in fact, to this day, Canadian school, school children, we all sing a hymn. Um, written in um, a native, uh, in a Native American language um, by Brebeuf um, using a traditional, he, he put 
he put a he took a traditional um, French um, uh, to a tune and put it to uh, words in the um, I think it was Iroquois language, and uh, we still sing that hymn today in Canada. I mean, so it was like I mean it was this lovely, and you know you are taught that hymn as a kid, and you're taught a little bit about Brebeuf, but you're not taught um, the tradition that he was coming out of. He was. It was very, I mean, it's a kind of beautifully, um, he was one of those Jesuit missionaries discovering the world, you know, opening up the world to the rest of the world, to European eyes in the um, 16th century. And he was a saint. He really was a saint. I mean, he was someone who did extraordinary work among um, uh, Native peoples in that time. Um, anyway, it was just kind of like, you know, would have, uh, if I if I thought that my audience was entirely made up of, Canadians, I would have done a separate episode on, on this is who Father Prabhuf really was and, and the tradition he was acting in. But, um, but you know, alas, uh, my audience is more than Canadians. <laughs> sure. So the most visible modern Jesuit among, you know, we have a lot of Jesuit saints and, and blesseds in the, the community, which is uh, a great a great blessing to us uh, and to the, the church, we hope. Uh, but the most visible and famous current Jesuit, obviously, is Pope Francis. So gotcha. again, a big public figure. You would have had familiarity with Pope Francis at least a bit uh, before going into this reporting. So you go down this Jesuit rabbit hole. You go to Rome, hang out in Pope Francis' backyard. Do you see him any differently now? Do you see him in a Jesuit context uh, or what he's, what he's I doing? I do. Well, in fact, I'm, I'm going to betray my ignorance here. It, I didn't realize he was a Jesuit. Oh, yeah, the first, the first Jesuit I pope. I learned this when I, when I was doing my reporting. I mean, I know I must have read it, but it just didn't register with me. And then I was in talking to, I think I was Keenan, or maybe it was Martin, and they were like, yes, the first, not just the first Jesuit Pope, but then they said the, the, a sad expression would go over their face, and they say, and probably the last. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, and suddenly when I realized I, all of the controversy around him within the church makes sense now because he's Jesuit and he's, you know, he's very different in perspective from his predecessors. His thinking is very different. A lot of what his approach and um, the things he says now make sense in a way that they didn't before. And that's another thing I would love to have done um, if I was going to do a fourth episode was to explain to non-Catholics why this why this this pope is different and special and interesting and why he's shaken up his church and why we can expect very different things. It is a, as you know, a radical thing to be a Jesuit pope. Um, none of this I knew. So it's like, um, yeah, so it was like this kind of... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of funny to be a to be an outsider and to to jump into this extraordinarily complicated world with years and years and years of history. It was just like incredibly fun. Yeah, well, I can tell you as an insider to have an outsider take interest in this like secular setting is uh, consoling and encouraging to me. I, I think that's a, a great thing, and hopefully that folks again who who listen to uh, revisionist history who aren't as familiar will will also grow in, in their curiosity, and I think that can only be uh, good for for us people who who really care about it. Um, so I, I wanted to again to ask a little bit then about. Um, so how the, the series fits into the podcast as a whole. So you describe the podcast Revisionist History as a journey through the overlooked and misunderstood. Uh, yeah. So without any big spoilers, so like what do you think is overlooked and misunderstood about Jesuits or, or Catholics more generally? 
Well, uh, I had two motivations. One was um, I have been um, the kind of the the controversies that the church is going through recently around um, uh, you know the all the sexual abuse stuff um, has made me, even though I'm not a Catholic, um, I have been you know. I, I have felt I have, I've had a number of strong reactions to the way the world has treated the Catholic Church around this. Um, I sort of feel like every institution um, in modern society is going to go through a version of this controversy. It so happens the Catholic Church is one of the first. And I think that people have not understood that this is the beginning of a kind of society wide reckoning. It doesn't. It is nothing specific to Catholic to the Catholic Church. It doesn't end with the Catholic Church. It's not about something that's wrong with Catholicism. It's something. It is a sickness that affects every institution in society. Um, you know, some other church is going to be next, and then company is going to be next. We had an industry that you know Hollywood, which is you know. So I have been. I have. I was a little concerned. I have been concerned that. This, the fact that the church has been the first, one of the first major institutions to grapple with this, has given license to a kind of anti-Catholic um, bigotry. Is too strong a word, but um, there has there have been some pretty ill-informed and prejudicial things said about the ch- church by non uh, by non-Catholics over this, which have distressed me as someone who takes religiosity and seriously. So I thought. It, this is a good time to talk about something beautiful um, that is part of the Catholic tradition. Maybe that will offset some of that um, uh, nastiness. Um, so that was one motivation. So we have overlooked, you know, if the mission of revisionist history is to look at the misunderstood and the overlooked, I think we're overlooking the much more important, beautiful parts of uh, the Catholic legacy. Um, at this particular point in time, because we're so consumed with this specific controversy. Um, so that was, um, and then um, also, you know, I one of the episodes is about the story of the scientist who is one of the code, of, who's the co-developer of the birth control pill, who is a very committed Catholic. And that story is all about how does someone who is in the world um, uh, very much on the cutting edge of science, square what he does with his faith. And it's a really important and beautiful story because it's someone who is, um, who was simultaneously at the absolute cutting edge of science in the 1960s. Um, and at the same time, very much, not just very much, um, you know, completely immersed in the, in the church, um, in an ancient tradition. And to, to his mind, there is no obvious contradiction between the two. Um, and that's why this guy's name is John Rock, and the whole episode is devoted to his conviction that this ancient faith and this fundamentally modern science that he's involved in are not in conflict. There is a way to make them consistent. Um, and that idea is so lovely and so, again, so relevant. Because I feel that sometimes people have a, particularly irreligious people, have as their default this notion that um, 
that religious practice is necessarily in conflict with the modern world. And I just think that's wrong. Uh, it, there's just no reason, there's no evidence for that. In fact, here's, you know, that's why I want to, to do that episode to say, here's an example of somebody who is as, you know, as modern as modern can be, who did not believe that. Um, and look, in, look at how he attempted to square what he was, his, his professional work with his faith. Um, so those are, you know, those are, I have, you know, so when I, when I do shows like this, the, um, there, I'm always, I often have a kind of larger agenda that I want people to kind of, um, you know, the, the, this season of, of Revisionist History began with two episodes on the LSAT. And I want people to, from that, I, what, I really want, what I really want people to do is to say, just because they make you take a standardized test before they let you into college or law school, doesn't mean they have good reasons for doing it, right? We can, it is, it is totally legit for us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, to ask those people who demand us to take those tests, to justify it, you know, tell me why you're doing it this way. And you know, more than often you discover they don't have a good reason. Um, so yeah, so there's always a kind of, there's often a larger motivation behind uh, the, the episodes I do on revisions history. When you uh, talk about the kind of marriage of faith and science and those things can, can live in, in harmony, I'm thinking about that. We're getting ready to you know celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And of course, here, uh, the Jesuit conference, we're highlighting you know the, uh, the the fact that there are more than 30 craters on the moon named for Jesuits. And the Jesuit uh, coined the the name, the Sea of Tranquility on the moon and, and have, again, this great history of, of uh, being involved uh, in science and continue to be, um, but we're seeing those things as uh, being able to live together. Yeah. Um, so if, just one last uh, question for you. If, the, if this itch to kind of dig into the Jesuits had happened for you, say, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had a, a podcast. You would have written an article or maybe a whole book. Um, so what about this format that you've been in now for a few years uh, do you enjoy? Well, I enjoy the immediacy of it. I enjoy that uh, how easy it is, you know, if I wrote a book about it, you would have to go to the book to the bookstore and spend thirty dollars to buy it, which is not you know I love when people do that, but the minute you're selling something, you limit your audience a little bit. Um, I love that absolutely anyone in the world who wants to can sign on to you know wherever they get their podcast tomorrow and get it for free instantly. I mean, like that's kind of it's the the reach of podcasts is really amazing. Um, and the idea that you can essentially whisper into someone's ear uh, is kind of amazing. Uh, so that's the, it's the most democratic and egalitarian, I guess is a better word, um, uh, of media forms I think ever created. Um, and that's, um, that's incredibly exciting, you know, uh, that there'll be no barriers whatsoever to reach, to reaching people. Just all you have to do is inform them and they have to carve out 35 minutes and you're done. Um, that's, that's incredibly exciting to me. Sure. So people can find it, uh, wherever they get podcasts. You have any, uh, any other things uh, coming up that you, uh, like to plug? Always have well, to have extend that invitation. I have a book coming out this fall called talking to strangers it comes out September 10th. Um, and, uh, so that's also an exciting thing. That's what will be obsessing me this fall is, uh, is, is, uh, going out and spreading the word about this book. 
Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, did hear you in the podcast mention that uh, you describe yourself as a wannabe Catholic, uh, maybe tongue in cheek, but I'll just <laughs> extend that invitation. We're always open uh, for people who are interested <laughs> in joining us. My my bosses would say, why didn't you recruit him if I if I didn't extend the invitation <laughs> politely? Uh, so that, that's always on the table. Well, thank you again, um, yeah. uh, Malcolm Gladwell, for, for hopping on and uh, good luck with the rest of the season and uh, the book release. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org. We're on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know is interested in discerning a vocation to join the Jesuits, visit us at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>